0: guest uh, john bandman who i had the pleasure of meeting in 2018 and he was leading a workshop called the fourth birth is that right john was it the fourth birth or the well third birth? <laughs>
1: it was called a master class <laughs> a
0: master class um which i had the honor and privilege of of attending and john is a prominent um trainer of the Satir model and he wrote this book which i'm going to reference hopefully at some point uh, he's one of the co-authors of The Satir Model. And uh, there's a lot of things that John and I could talk about. We had a, a lengthy conversation just a few weeks ago before this pandemic reached North America. And uh, I think today what I'd like to do is to explore your own personal connection with Virginia Satir, the the powerful lessons that you've learned and also how you've extended her work beyond her life and before we get into that i wonder if you'd lead us in a meditation that will help people listening connect to themselves in a time of great disorder and chaos and uh and finding a way that we can more deeply connect to themselves and then potentially with one another how does that sound to you yes okay So I
1: would like to have the uh, assumed audience, if you could sit down and make yourself comfortable and maybe close your eyes. And the first thing I would like you to take a look at is your breathing. So just be observant of it. Just be aware. You don't need to change it just be aware of your breathing. It could be shallow, it could be slow, it could be fast, whatever it is, just acknowledge it. Then I would like to ask you to be aware of three different levels of your experience. The first one is, can you experience your body What is your body experiencing right now? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it relaxed? What is your body telling you right now? And just see if you could be aware. You can aware and accept. So from your body's awareness, I would ask you to be aware of your feelings. How do you feel right now? There could be some negative feelings. There could be a lot of positive feelings. But just to be aware of how you feel right now. And then thirdly, I'd like to ask you, can you watch your thoughts? What are you thinking about right now? They could be here. They could be thinking about the past. They could be thinking about what you need to do. Just be aware, accept aware. And then just see if you can put those three questions together. And the question then would be, how do you experience yourself at this moment? How, what does your body say? What are your feelings? What are your thoughts? And then maybe we can change something. We can focus on something positive. And the positive thought I have is gratitude. Can you experience, think about, feel, and experience gratitude? That could have many areas of focus. You could be feeling gratitude towards life. Could be gratitude towards others. And it could be gratitude for your own existence. But see if you can experience a level of gratitude. And then notice if you can see what does your body say what do your feelings experience and what are your thoughts when you feel when you feel your thoughts with gratitude And with this sense of gratitude, I hope you can stay tuned and to listen to Tim and me talk a little about one of the great teachers of our time. So if you're ready, come back and we'll chat about what happened my experience and my application of the Satir model. Wonderful. Thank okay. you, John.
0: So maybe we can start at the beginning point where your life intersected with Virginia. What was the, <laughs> uh, what was the first meeting like?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually I met her luggage before I met her, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> okay. her, her baggage. I, Oh, uh, she used to travel from one place to another, never went home, so she had a lot of luggage. Okay, so I met Virginia Satir in 1970 in January in Mm -hmm. Brandon, Manitoba. And it was a five-day residential workshop for professionals. For you, I might say that Maria Gamori and I were at the same workshop. Mm -hmm. At 19 January 1970. Wow. Okay. Okay. Now, the interesting thing for me is I had just graduated in December with my doctorate in psychology. Okay. And so I met her the month after. Actually, the official graduation certificate says uh, my graduation was in 1970. But anyway, I finished the dis- defense, as you know, these kinds of things. I d- finished my defense in January. Right. My pr- training had been very strict Rogerian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In Rogerian terms at that time, I don't ask questions. You might tell people how they feel, but you don't ask questions.
0: Mm-hmm. You're talking you about know, Carl, Carl Rogers and his reflex- reflective Uh, reflections.
1: So for me, it was a big, big shift. Virginia Sotir would ask questions, would ask questions, and she would ask questions, you know, even to the point where I say she's A descendant of Socrates, (laughs) because Socrates, he maybe went around asking questions. Virginia Satir asked questions. It was such a big shift for me. It was memorable, but I still remember that big shift for me. That's how I met her. Spent five days with her, had a great time. She and I connected, I thought, really well. How many people were at the training? About 40. 40, okay. And what was met... her,
0: what was her reputation at the time? And that N- you...
1: 19, uh, we had, okay, most of us had never heard of her. Okay. So, but we had heard good things about her, but we hadn't, hadn't heard, we never met her before. We hadn't really heard of her before. Mm-hmm. There was a little group of people who were doing workshops at the time, and they organized this because one of the social workers had told us this would be a very good workshop leader. Mm -hmm. So we in Manitoba didn't really know her.
0: Was the focus on family therapy or what was was the emphasis?
1: Well, it was supposed to be family therapy. You know, that's, we were good because they were all professionals and it was supposed to be family therapy. Mm -hmm. But as it turned out, in order to do family therapy, you have to be in a bigger state of consciousness. And so much of the focus was getting your own act together. Okay. So it was teaching family therapy by being experiential, working on our relationship or family of origin or uh, internal process.
0: Mm-hmm. And had you, Uh, had you done that? I mean, when you talk about the line of that that Socratic line of questioning, the exploration, was that new for you? Exploring your own genogram and and looking at personal personal history?
1: Very definitely very new to Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was it felt very good, but it was quite new, you know, that the focus of learning was not an external kind of class. It was very, very much an internal process.
0: Mm -hmm. So you were each made to be the star, to focus.
1: Well, we would very often be the role player. Mm -hmm. She would do a lot of demonstration. And so most of us would probably be the role player in somebody else's family of origin. She would sculpt relationships, ma-pa-kid, ma-pa-kid, and so forth, and have us look at from the so-called a dysfunctional communication to a more congruent communication Mm -hmm. and what's in between what had to change. Mm -hmm.
0: What did that, what did that first experience open up for you personally? Well, it
1: changed my whole, my whole direction. Like I said to her after or during that time, I want to learn more about this. I want to like, I want to be your student. I want to, I want to be this way. To me, it was like a conversion, I think, from what I had been learning to what, yeah. I, to what I was experiencing. So in my, say, if I look at my master's degree in, in at UBC, University of British Columbia, that was quite the So I had some kind of uh, family system in my background. Mm -hmm. But in my doctorate, it was all Rogerian. So now here was a new teacher, a new person I could connect with and learn from and probably follow. I think the word follow would have been a good word at that time. Mm -hmm.
0: I wonder what were some of the things that you witnessed in that first five-day training that inspired you, that made you see that what she was doing was maybe different than what you experienced before?
1: Well, Yeah. I, I don't know. If I look at it, I think that what impressed me the most was change took place every minute. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a long kind of psychoanalytical kind of exploration. There was immediate change, and it was positively direction. You know, people would make massive, what I thought massive changes in terms of relationship with themselves and others. So the, the, the immediacy of change was probably one of the factors. Mm. I'm quite sure it was one of the factors. Yeah. Another one was that it had a very positive tone to it. That was in tune with Carl Rogers, kind mm-hmm. of a humanistic philosophy. Yeah.
0: I wonder if you could illustrate that for people who may have have not. I've seen lots of tape. Um, I've only seen tape, obviously, but she she died in 1988, and I first encountered her work in 2007, I think, and so it was just all tape. But I wonder, and I and I saw those things. Those things came through in the the tapes that they were fortunate to, enough to have. Can you illustrate maybe by examples of things you've seen or experienced? What was immediate and what kind of positive changes you witnessed?
1: Well, I think the word that I appreciate from her for a long time is she would make things experiential. Mm-hmm. So it was more than just a head understanding or a head exploration. She would go inside and make person experience what was going on. That to me was probably one of the highlights and has been a highlight ever since that her approach is experiential. You experience what you're working on. So when you are angry, you don't just talk about anger. You go into the experience, into your body basically and experience things. Then with her belief that people are, by nature, positive, you try to connect that positive energy to her, with her, so that she, you can experience yourself in a positive aspect, in a positive light, that there is a deeper self. Maybe we'll talk about that a little later. There's a deeper self. Can you connect with that deep, deeper self And then what is in the way for you to experience that? Mm -hmm. So there would be something in the way. Sometimes it's called expectations are in the way. I want it this way, but it can't be. Sometimes my thoughts are in the way. Sometimes my feelings are in the way. So how can I change my feelings, my perceptions, my expectation in such a way that I'm in tune with myself, which she called congruence. How can I be congruent with myself, take responsibility for that and have a different experience of my life?
0: Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, certainly a divergence from the or kind of blank slate, a psychoanalytic uh, model that preceded her work. Her use of self was, I think, unique for the time. And I wonder when you talk about that positive direction how did you witness her using herself in a way that had that impact and had that, that allowed people to, to go into an experience quite deeply? What did you see? Well,
1: I think two, two things, maybe, maybe there are more, but let me just give you two. One of them is she would be fully present. She would be right there. Mm -hmm. You would experience her. So later on, she talked sometimes making contact, but it was much more than making contact her presence her energy was there mm-hmm. and then i think her belief her real belief that we are precious we are unique we are lovable and we can we can have a better happier life
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i could see those things through the tapes that i saw and i think that's what stood out to her even through these you know, digitized or videotaped things that those beliefs that you're talking about were evident um, and had such a powerful impact because it mm. I think it then helped people reflect that in themselves or connect to that place in themselves, which I th- which you're calling I think the deep self.
1: Uh, See, she would talk about sometimes she used this candle as one of her examples, and she she would say, you know, I'm going to help you help light your candle. But really, before she would help us light our candle, she would be a bright candle. Mm-hmm. She would bring her own bright candle into the relationship of her therapy, mm-hmm. and that would help others to have faith, I hope, or belief that she, they also had that light, and they can look forward mm-hmm. so it was it was a more positively directional. Uh, approach away from i think focusing everything on pathology
0: from from what you you developed a personal relationship with her i'm not sure was it right at that point within that five-day workshop that you developed yeah. a personal relation okay
1: we yes we've talked about it yes the yeah answer, yes.
0: yeah and and so from that point on what did you what have you did you learn about her where she developed such a positive outlook uh, such a powerful presence of being with others was that something just inherent to her or how did she how did she get
1: like that <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I, that's a good question <laughs> well i don't know because i think she was really much more trained in the psychoanalytical uh, context at the university of chicago Mm-hmm. or wherever and uh, where she took her training and it seemed like her teaching experience before that had really made her look at the human nature differently mm-hmm. than they were teaching her at grad school so mm-hmm. i i don't know you know we can say it was innate she was gifted it was all there or she made her own journey without very much him, very him very little help from mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time I met her in nineteen seventy, she was fully blossoming with her approach and her being, mm-hmm. and it was great just to be with her, just to be in her presence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's such a, a hopeful and positive, and and you know, I've I've met you, I've met Marie Gamori, I've met many different people that have that were there training with her um laura dodson sharon lotion there's so many people that from the moment that they met her the, exactly in the way that you're describing it's like a, they um changed their trajectory and became very inspired to train with her and to learn from her and mm-hmm. you know 50 years later are still passionate about sharing her work um so let's maybe let's revisit the timeline because so we're still into the first five days yeah <laughs> um What, I mean, if there's anything else about those five days in terms of your impression of her, um, what happens next in terms of your connection with her?
1: Okay, the next big thing was that uh, the government of Manitoba hired Virginia Satir to come and train the whole country, the whole province. So Mm -hmm. in 1972, she came back to Manitoba for three months and she worked everything from the cabinet, the cabinet premier and the cabinet to everyday public. So Mm -hmm. she did public workshops and she would do special uh, training workshops with all the hospital administrators, with the doctors, with therapists. And so she spent three months in Manitoba in 1972
0: what were people learning? What was the-
1: Well, what she, she- what she was doing at that time mostly was what we would could call the my, mini family reconstructions. She would have us work in a three-generational exploration of impact and transformation and how to deal with the, the, the person, how to deal with what was going on for them in the present with impacts of the present. So much of the point we, she would have a star. She -hmm. would have a star work with them as sort of a client. And then we would learn from it. You know, we would go, but most of our learning at that time was role playing. Mm -hmm. We would be involved in somebody else's family of origin. And we would take a look at how we became, how to, basically it was like, we need to the impact. Now, when I look at uh, say Bruce Lipton, what we really look at, we wanted to change the environmental impact of uh, our uh, existence so that we could change it at the energy level. See, at that time, maybe we didn't understand it or we didn't talk about it, but really basically what I see in retrospect is that we, we, she worked at energy level. So when you look at, we look at information level, and then we look at process level, and then we look at meaning level, and then we look at energy level. So I I can look at the satirium model, at least at those four levels. And Mm -hmm. she would work much more at energy level. But at that time, she also said, if I talk too much about that, people will say I'm a little out of tune, Mm -hmm. uh, wacky. And so she would try to phrase it in terms that were much more acceptable at the time. But now looking back, it was very much working at energy level.
0: Okay. Can you,
1: if I'm making sense?
0: Yeah. Well, I think um, when you talk about informational level in the beginning part of her work, um, communication, her communication model was was one aspect of it, and I think that's what you mean in terms of the informational, the process level, meaning, the the interpretive level, how we, um, how we. Uh, create meanings from what people are saying and sort of taking those things apart and kind of reimagining them in a way where the the words and the affect are are sort of separate, but when you 're talking about energy you 're talking about something that 's part of that, uh, but maybe also quite distinct. so maybe you could describe it a little bit more so people can understand what you mean by energy
1: well, I mean, I can quote our, uh... Genius Albert Einstein, who says everything is energy, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about. I mean, I'm talking about that kind of level of, of understanding that all life is energy. Mm-hmm. So energy is, uh, and is what is so. For the question, uh, is what is human energy, and how can somebody be in touch with that human energy? So in, ter- in terms of that, I feel as I have to be very much in touch with my own energy, positive energy that could start with awareness, could start with attitude, it could start with with uh, with feelings, but deeper down there is a flow of it's so-called I called and they called it energy. So she. Called it later on, maybe at that time too, I don't remember. But she would call it life energy. We are life energy. We are positive life energy. And we need to operate at that level. If we can operate it at that level, we will get in harmony with ourselves, with others, and with the universe. Mm. And go ahead.
0: I oh, know I was going to say this might be a bit of a leap, but obviously, at this, this time where everyone's social distancing, you know, we're in the sort of amidst this COVID pandemic. I wonder if you've been reflecting at all in connection to what you're just talking about, about the importance of energy, of being in touch with with life energy, obviously, that's very, very broad, but then our own unique human energy and then our own contribution to the larger system. In which we are a part, um, I wonder if you could speak to that because I think there's something very powerful in terms of how do we move from where from status quo, wherever we are now, a place where there is pain and chaos and confusion, in that positively directional way, which Virginia would would want to work right that's that's part of her belief, and she embodied that. Um, I wonder if you could speak to how that how what you're describing in terms of energy is relevant now and maybe a place that we could generate some hope
1: well <clears throat> i think the first the the first thing i would like people are but distancing themselves or isolating themselves it seems like a lot of people are actually isolating they're isolated from uh, from their uh, environment and so the to me is to go inside. You know, so how can people go inside and become aware of their thoughts, their feelings, and their uh, their expectation? Okay, so one of the things, like she, you remember she had two books out called meditations. So she has she has helped people through her so-called guided meditation to become more inside so that we could become aware of it. She then sort of looks at, you know, can we be aware of a deeper sense of life? Mm -hmm. So she says at one time or several times, okay, we are spirit in a human body. Mm -hmm. How can we connect with that spirit? That self, that self is a positive, energy and in relationship in a dualistic kind of relationship then you can connect with a higher self or a higher being or a higher energy that could be some people call that god some people could call that the universe or some people call it the a the, uh, a being and so she had this idea that there was a greater energy than we were and maybe we can find a way of connecting with it and it wouldn't have to be uh, a personal kind of god but it would be some kind of a universal energy so one of the things that i saw her doing is can you get in touch with that energy now if i listen to people talking about about uh, in the healing the body, that the body has its capability of healing us. When I broke a, break, break an ankle, I can heal that. If I cut myself, my body heals that. Can we also heal the energy or the spirit of how we got damaged or broken? And she would say, yes, of course, that's what we would do. We would get to heal what has been broken. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, as you talked about, there's a natural positive direction when we, when we get cut, the body knows how to heal. Um, And, and I, when I was learning about family therapy and family systems through her model, she had a very different frame around what symptoms meant that symptoms were describing a, a lack of homeostasis and it was a symbolic of the pain and to not overemphasize what's happening with that one individual who might be the problem child or the scapegoat but to look at the larger system and i think we're at a time right now where you know we might formulate and think about this the symptom of where we're sick and 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 experiencing pain and how we're coping with it in a similar way because you know she has that famous quote of the problem isn't the problem the problem is the coping with the problem and and I guess what I'd like to to make a connection to is, you know, we're, we're all experiencing change. And, and I think a transformation is happening. And I wonder from the things that you're experiencing early on and throughout your connection with her, I'm curious, you know, you're talking about this this positive energy, this life energy. What are ways that you learned and connected to that influenced your life and continues to influence your life that you know we might bring into our inner world and into our our mental states and into our, into our relationships um, that might benefit people now.
1: Well, let's let's see if we can find a uh, several points on this. Mm-hmm. And my 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 sense is that we would still first become aware of how we experience ourselves, mm-hmm. not. Who are we are. That's that gets a little too too advanced. Just how do we experience ourselves? And very often we'll find out we experience ourselves in a fairly negative kind of way.
0: Mm.
1: We live either in the past or we live in the future, and we are not living living very much in the present. So I want to have people become more aware of how they experience themselves. Mm. And then and if I then would jump from that, then I want to say, now, how can I help you to be in charge of how you experience yourself? How can you take charge of your unmet expectation, your feeling, your attitude, your thoughts? How can you be in charge of it? Mm-hmm. So then it okay, how can I then, in order to be char- in charge, I have to change. I have to look at change. And so, how will I change it? So, I'm going to help people as if I were a trainer. I would try to help people to change their three aspects of it. Maybe the fourth one would be their behavior. But basically, we go inside and say, okay, I'm going to have a more positive attitude. I'm going to link myself to a higher or deeper, energy and now i'm going to change my attitude my expectation and my feelings so how do i do that once one at a time so i can find one of the easiest ways would be that i can i can elevate my feelings by raising them to a higher level of vibration That would be I will get in touch with like I tried for people be at the beginning of our interview try to get in touch with gratitude Mm. at the experiential level. If I have, so I would change my feelings. Now let's look at an expectation. I have a certain expectation. You know something didn't happen that happened. Something happened that shouldn't have happened. I have an expectation. So if I had an expectation that wasn't met, I would uh, react to it. So Satir had this beautiful teaching of, can you accept without liking? Mm-hmm. And we have a very hard time accepting things without liking. It is raining outside here. I don't like it but I can accept it. It has no valence, it has no strength on me. I know it's there, I don't like it, I'm gonna get wet if I go outside, but I can accept it. So we learn how to look at our unmet expectation, and uh, we see if we can accept them, maybe let go of them, and and find some new ones. Mm. And at the perception would be the same thing. You know, I have some thoughts. This is how it should be. This is how it's, this is how it must be. And we would be more accepting. And I will now create new ideas for myself.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm familiar. I think what you're referring to now is is the, the metaphor of the iceberg, which are these different elements of experience, you're talking about feelings, perceptions, and expectations, which are some of the elements there. And mm-hmm. I think within what you're describing, it sounds like being aware of what's taking place, that, that initial question you asked of, how am I experiencing myself? What am, what am I experiencing, period? Like what's in my consciousness? Mm-hmm. What's happening? And then you're describing connecting to an energy, perhaps an, an attitude that is that is more transcendent than that particular mode of being. So if a particular mode of being is I don't like this, I'm annoyed, I'm irritated. Some of the words that you use were acceptance. The word that you used in the meditation was gratitude. And I think these, these are, you could think of them as higher order energies or levels of thinking that yeah. transcend the individual. They're not just about you. Maybe you're also thinking about others or you're also thinking about the context. And in in those elements that Virginia talked about, I think that's that's maybe where the the change can happen. It's it's you're describing a, a grounding in what is, and then using these transcendent energies like acceptance and gratitude as a as in like nature, a tree would use sun and you know rainwater and the the nutrients of the ground to help transform those ingredients into something else. Um, does that fit in terms of where, what you're describing this, yeah. this change?
1: Well, see, see, she has a basic sense of self that we haven't talked about. The self is kind of a natural uh, energy that has basically yearnings. And so deeper down at the senses we talk about People have yearnings, just like you said, a, fly, a tree needs sun, water, uh, earth, soil. We have also needs. You know, people like uh, Abraham Maslow called them needs. Satir thought needs were too negative, And so she called needs yearnings. Mm. And so we have basically an innate yearnings, yearning to be alive, yearning to love, yearning to have meaning, yearning to have purpose, yearning to connect, to be validated. They're basic yearnings that have, we have in our nature. And those, need, those yearnings need to be met. And mm-hmm. so we meet them at our experience level. So we have a yearning to be loved. And now in relationship, how do I get my love? Well, I need it from two, from myself, I need it from others. So we try to meet our yearnings through our experience. And one of the hopes that she had is that we would be responsible for meeting our own yearnings. And Mm -hmm. we would help children to meet their own yearnings. So Mm -hmm. the parents would help people meet their yearnings and if they didn't we could then get symptoms and so the symptoms were just a manifestation of not meeting your yearnings
0: okay there's a there's a lot in, in what you're describing and 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 i want to hit on two things one is this this foundational belief that we're each responsible for meeting our own yearnings and and i remember seeing sessions where she would talk to people about one, one thing is she would describe, uh, she would, she wouldn't sort of allow for this languaging of, you know, how did this person make you feel? And she would say something that sounded like, uh, you know, what did you see that person do that then you created that feeling for yourself and that, that we, we, in terms of our own experience, we are generating our own experience. And, um, and when she was talking about happiness, she would say, you know, what, what does somebody do that you can take that in as a positive thing that you can generate happiness for mm-hmm. yourself? So I, I, I love that emphasis on responsibility because it empowers us to be choice makers, which is, I know is a big emphasis of the model. Um, and then what you're describing in terms of yearnings is being, you know, I think of it as sort of the central nucleus of a, of a molecule that the, the nucleus gives information for the whole cell to, of what it's going to do. And the central yearnings connected to a deep sense of self are those root, roots. There's the, the foundational elements that um, instruct where we want to go. It's like our, our genetic code of what what needs to happen, how that seed becomes a tree. And coming back to when you were describing what energy was, I think when you describe yearnings, that's a beautiful and concrete way of saying that's energy. When you're connected at the level of yearnings, mm-hmm. these are seeds that are trying to manifest out into the world as something. What What is your manifestation of connection? What is your manifestation of love? If you could connect at that point, you may be experiencing discomfort or dislike, but if you're functioning at that level, that's where transformation can happen. So that. I think that's a very hopeful message. Very good. Very yeah.
1: good. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So let's let's revisit our timeline because I want to because I think I feel like what we're doing is as we are are going through this history we're able to um call out the the ways that life has been impacted the work that you've done and we haven't even gotten to the the work that you've done in in the province of BC creating the the, the Institute, which does a lot of the training for Virginia Satir's work. And then also a ton of the work that's in China, which is a, it's a huge part of um, how Virginia's work has been uh, pushed forward. So I, I want us to, to try to get to those things today, if possible, <laughs> but kind of stay okay. with the timeline. We're into 1972. You're describing the work that she did in, in Manitoba, Um, across different levels of government and and publicly. Um, So can you carry carry us a forth from there?
1: Well, okay. After, so a little personal part, after 1975, Mm -hmm. 1975, my jobs changed and I became very involved with uh, government functions in Manitoba. And so I lost a little contact with her. Mm-hmm. And then I decided, we, we, came, we came from British Columbia to Manitoba in 1965. And we've always wanted to go back home to British Columbia. Okay. And in 19, 19, uh, 1979, we decided to come back to British Columbia. In between, I had gotten some pretty important, so-called important jobs, and I had moved out of uh, counseling into administration. Mm-hmm. And so, in 1979, we decided that uh, we would take our children back to Vanc to Vancouver to meet the grandparents that were still alive at the time, mm-hmm. and so. One of the things I always wanted to do was to be a, you, this big word. I wanted to be a professor, so I joined the university faculty of University of British Columbia. Okay. I'd had three degrees from there, so they knew me there, and they invited me to come and be an associate professor okay. of uh, of psychology, counseling psychology. Mm. As soon as I got there. I uh, reconnected with Virginia Satir. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm doing a summer institute and come and join me.
0: That was 1979?
1: 1979. So that was in 1980 in the summer. I joined her in Utah. And we had a three-week workshop that we attended. Maria Gamora and I were both there at -hmm. the time. And so what Virginia started doing is she would have what she called process communities. Mm-hmm. You would days. have four, four week process communities starting, mm-hmm. I think in 1981 in the Colorado. And so I would be part of the faculty of her month long from 1981 until the end of her life, actually beyond that. Mm -hmm. So for eight years, I would go to Colorado and spend four weeks with her being part of the facilitators of her group.
0: Okay, so these intensive four-week residential, these are mostly therapists then? I imagine there's also some other professions that came... Um, and so you were one of the trainers that, that were there. My understanding is there would be like 90, 100 people 90. there. No, 90. She 90.
1: Really 90. She wanted 90 people there. To
0: make triads.
1: Is that right? And, and then she would divide the group of 90 into three groups yeah. of 30 each. And then she would have a triad for each of the 30. Mm-hmm
0: what did you learn what did you experience and learn there with her what that was different than when you first started in 19 i think you first met her in 1970 yeah 1970 so 10 years later
1: one of the one of the things well i think i still learned a lot in terms of what she was doing you know the but she was doing it more in larger groups Mm -hmm. so then it became like now how can you train large groups So we were very much taught how to operate in larger groups, how to take a group and make it an experiential training program for them to be in in the slang language of the day, how to help them to become more congruent. Mm -hmm. So then as a congruent person, you can then be anything. You could be a housewife, you could be a taxi driver, you could be a therapist but you would be more congruent inside and then you would build more positive relationships with others within the context. So mm-hmm. she would put a lot of emphasis on self, other, and context to great, bring those three as- aspects into harmony. Mm-hmm. So
0: I'm, I'm going to ask you to describe, I'm, uh, I will do my best to avoid using the word define because these are, difficult things to really pin down congruent can you describe what you mean by congruent? well <laughs> i know that could be a whole other all right thing that we get uh, into it, but just for for the purpose of of people understanding why because you're emphasizing that as a central concept to her work as uh as a baseline for people to function well in any role um what is congruent
1: uh, yeah mm. i think it's 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 slightly misunderstood in my opinion so i sure. want to give you my definition of sure. congruence that yeah. is to me congruent is to be in harmony with your basic life energy okay. that you are in harmony with your basic life energy
0: yeah i think i can i can get with that one i think that, okay. that fits with my so, way of
1: thinking about it. Yeah. so and then once you're in, in 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 harmony or in touch with that harmony, then you can try to get in tune, bring the rest of the stuff in tune. Mm-hmm. So if you're a little musical, if I can use the musical example, is if you want to have, if you go to an orchestra, symphony orchestra, and the first violinist has the oboe play a note, note is called a the, notes, the a everybody tries to tune their instrument in terms of that a nice. that a to me is the self and okay. so i yeah. want to be in tune with that self that it could be a universal self or a personal self but she to goes to, goes to the point for me she goes to the point where there is a universal energy that we get to be in tune with. So congruence is being in tune with that universal self, be in tune and experience your own personal self, your energy, and then have your own experiences. That means feelings, perceptions, and uh, and um, expectations in tune, and then be in tune with somebody else. Mm. So congruence is to me a very deeper, it's a deeper kind of thing instead of just how do you feel? Be in tune with your feelings to me wouldn't be congruent because I can be in tune with my anger, but that's not congruent.
0: Yeah. You know, there's this image that, that came to me within the first few months of my son's life. He's three years old now. And when I would walk into the daycare, I would carry a copy of the Tao Te Ching, uh, and there was one particular verse in that where it described this imagery of a tree. And the for me, what, what was so useful, it, it would describe how a person becomes undone when they try to attain everything. They want to express everything from the branches. And the, the image that came to me is how much we all can get into the trap of trying to achieve or try to acquire or attach to something through, through our branches, whether it's creating a wonderful work, mm. whether it's producing good fruit, literally, uh, or how the, the influence we can have as a parent with our children, teachers with students, the amount of money we can make, that there's all this kind of fruit that, that are material things that we're trying to attain for. And when you're des- what you're describing in terms of this connection to self, this harmony with the universal energy what we're talking about is related to yearnings when we have harmony with that i envisioned that as like an alignment of a tree that's deeply rooted in the earth and really connected to something that then it grows from that place and can manifest something really quite beautiful because it's in harmony with that when we try to attain for something a reputation material good without that rooting without that base then i think that's where we experience uh disharmony or or lack of congruence um so that's that's my image for for describing what you're talking about i wonder how that fits for you
1: good yeah you know see you say the tree has his life right we know the difference between a tree dead and a tree life. In my yeah. senses, okay. If a tree is alive, what is that life? That's the life energy of a tree. Mm-hmm. And how can you, as a human being, be in a touch with your own life energy, so that we have a sense of who we really are? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So, so this was a huge emphasis and. You had these 30-day intensives to work at that. How did that? How did that go?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, everybody seemingly everybody brought their garbage with them, so lots of stuff came out. Mm-hmm. So she would basically have them morning, and work with the 90 people, and then at the in the afternoon we in triads would work with our 30 people and we would then make it more personal so that we could work with 30 people and everybody basically would have their agenda that they would work with so that they could become what we have now called more congruent that they would be more in charge that they would be more positive and that they could have a different experience of who they are. Mm-hmm. And, and so in the evening, very- we would, in the evening, the groups, we would then divide the groups into as what you said, in triads and they practice in the evening mm-hmm. with each. So we had three levels, one her doing the total group, us doing one third of the group, in the evenings people would work with uh, it. Tri-
0: how much was family of origin, genograms, how much was that uh, early life uh, exploration a part of that process?
1: Quite a bit, quite a bit. We did, we did a lot of family of origin stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, one of the things that she contributed is what we call stances, right? We talk about placating, blaming, super reasonable, irrelevant. We would say, this is how you survive. You manifest your survival in a energy of sort of a coping energy, survival energy. And so we would very often try to take a look at a person. How are they dealing with their energy? Are we in the survival way and how can we turn that survival into a more congruent way and is what's in the way. So we would work on, okay, I'm, and people started using the concepts of triads a little uh, unfairly because they would go and say, I'm a blamer, I'm a super reasonable, I'm so-and-so, which was not her point. Her point was that these were at least four ways how we are working in survival when things are not in tune. Mm -hmm. And so very often we would use stances as a way of taking a look at how we are coping at this moment in relationship to others and relationship to ourselves and how we could work through whatever got in the way so that we can flow more easily with the life energy.
0: Mm. So So there would
1: be a lot of work, you know, a lot of work. I mean, everybody was basically there and they would be subject and object at the same time.
0: Yeah. I guess I have a question about the the context because I think in order for people to connect and to become aware of their survival coping, the context needs to be safe enough and nurturing enough to risk putting that out there. What did Virginia do and the team of people do to create a, a context where that was possible?
1: Good question. You know, to me, it was, to me, at that time, and I think it's probably still, it was her. She brought safety to the group. She would be, she would be, I guess one could say, she would be so loving, so caring, so uh, curious, so accepting that people were able to be that way now i'm sure there were different degrees of that safety but there were definitely that was one of her one of her earlier achievements right from the first day how to make this safe for people to look inside and almost be publicly vulnerable to in order to take a closer look at it that to me was very much her 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 energy
0: mm. yeah i've heard Um, a a friend of mine described it as her energy was like that of the great mother that in terms of attachment in terms of developing a secure attachment you know what you describe in terms of presence attunement validation all those things all those attachment needs that we all possess she was able to provide that secure base i think with the people that she worked with but then also the uh, people work with in terms of families and and clients, but then also with professionally. So I wonder for you, being around her energy, that and she had such a presence and such a nurturing energy, how did that affect or impact you personally and professionally?
1: Well, I guess there, those are two questions. You know, mm-hmm. Personally, I would try, I would try to be more congruent, to take a look at what's happening and how I can let go of some of them might say my childhood experiences and see if I can come to tune in, in to turn in terms with them in terms of that. And then the other one would be the skill part. How can I learn how to do that aspect of it? So mm-hmm. for a while there became very much skill-based. Skill <clears throat> we need to do this, we need to do that. What I think very often we wanted to look at a formula that would be there. Like, you know, give us a recipe and uh, we will follow it. And we would try to make it into kind of a recipe. And we found that that was very difficult. It had to be much deeper comes and come from within. So the idea that the two questions very often became one question, the question of how can I be, and how can I use, apply, what i'm learning Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so there was a
1: there was a constant i think introspection at the experiential level so that we she that's why i think she called it process we're in process Mm -hmm. we're in constant process of taking a look and being in charge
0: and i i love that because i think for our you could differentiate it as in a recipe is like intellectually what's the right form what's mm-hmm. the right linear pattern of what we're supposed to do here yeah. and as long as we're dealing with people you're dealing with um, you're dealing with the unpredictable, and so maybe what's more transcendent to intellectualizing a psychological process and maybe deeper than just a psychological process is wisdom right Wis- wisdom is is maybe that which can you can deal with the present moment flexibly and um maybe to kind of spark and and transition us into this where we're maybe going when i was meditating this morning i came upon a passage from the tao Te um and and i was thinking about our conversation today so maybe i can read that and see what it sparks for both of us would that be okay all right um The masters of this ancient path are mysterious and profound. Their inner state baffles all inquiry. Their depths go beyond all knowing. Thus, despite every effort, we can only tell of their outer signs. Deliberate, as if treading over the stones of a winter brook. Watchful, as if meeting danger on all sides. Reverent, as if receiving an honored guest. Selfless, like a melting block of ice. Pure, like an uncarved block of wood. Accepting, like an open valley. Through the course of nature, muddy waters become clear. Through the unfolding of life, man reaches perfection. Through sustained activity, the supreme rest is naturally found. Those who have Tao want nothing else. Though seemingly empty... They are ever full, though seemingly old. They are beyond the reach of birth and death. So does anything come up for you in in hearing that?
1: Well, yes, but, you know, the the battle is, the battle is, my battle, I think somewhere you wanted to know, where things are now. To me, the battle is that what Satir really taught was what you just read. But we're so focused on the psychological aspect, we miss that so-called spiritual part. And I think that that spiritual part to me is that life energy that I'm talking about. It is beyond thought. It is beyond, Mm -hmm. beyond art physical experience it has a universal Mm -hmm. a non-dualistic kind of component to it and my sense is that if i look at her from that perspective i see her working at the level that you just read it's beyond it's beyond Mm -hmm. beyond one's Mm -hmm. emotional mental capacity and there's a whole different layer of life experience that she tapped and she manifested.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how mysterious, but then also inspiring uh, for, for all of us to, to even imagine a place. And I think when, you know, when we're talking about the kind of connection that she was able to make with people, and, and when you're describing your own personal connection, that it inspired you to move towards your own greater level of congruence. It's it's like, I think when we have that connection with someone, we can imagine that what we got from our parents was limited and we can accept that more and be inspired to explore ourselves more in a different way so we can transcend our survival coping that which we learned to be and to, to develop within our family of origin into something else. And I think for for me, that's, been what's been profound about her work um <laughs> so what, um,
1: what i think we're tapping now is you know what is the satire model really about mm-hmm. you know and i think we have to me it has very different levels you can li- look at the level of communication we're going to communicate at a more more uh, positive kind of energy or we're going to change to the point where we will transform to the point where we will be more spirit, where we 'll be more life energy, where we 'll be more like your your reading is be one, mm-hmm. just to be one mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i and i I love that idea that we are more than our temporal feelings and thoughts that occur they 're important to take care of, and they they obviously affect us very deeply but there's some Mm. there's some aspect there's some river that's flowing through us there's Mm. a life within us that's deeper than that and that connects us all in some kind of way we are are each a unique manifestation of of life energy which is something that virginia talked about Mm. Mm -hmm. and to to reach forth into that place within us to to try to perceive that which exists in other people and i think that's that's what was so profound in her work because i saw her working in that way with other people it felt inherently right and truthful for me so when i worked with families and when i worked with kids i would always try to do my best to see past behavior to see past symptoms mm. and to try to to connect and to make contact with that core worth that core value and and for me i think that whatever techniques emanate from that, that seems to be a central um, aspect of the process and of the work.
1: Yeah, and I think we're just beginning to to unearth that part and Mm -hmm. acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to me, then there's different layers of application. One of my scholarly mm-hmm. friends, when he read the book Satir Model that you have there, he said uh, that he responded to it in in writing and he said satire model is deceptively simple. Deceptively simple. Mm-hmm. So I think we can teach and use satire model in a very superficial kind of way and it works. We can use it at a kind of therapeutic kind of way and it works and we can use it at a more deeper energetic or spiritual level and it works. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to do more of the latter to kind of acknowledge that the satire model is much deeper than the everyday emotional uh, therapeutic level. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's one of her major contribution
0: Mm-hmm. so that that gets me to to one of my my questions for today, which is what is your hope for virginia 's work in in the modern world and into the future you 're starting to describe that, but yeah what what would you say in terms of the next generation for uh, for people that are just learning about virginia 's work for yeah for your students
1: well, see I would I think, I don't know if we're doing it or we're not doing it, but I would like us to take the whole satire model and take it out of just the concept of family therapy. I think satire model is way beyond the family therapy model. It is a life model, how Mm -hmm. to be alive, how to be genuinely spiritually alive. So I would hope that we can take more and more of the satire model into that deeper level of being. Uh, that would be my, my hope. And I think there are some people like you who are actually acknowledging and being aware of it and, and pursuing that. I think we don't have enough of them. When I see some of the people you're know, teaching the satire model, it's, it's, it's at the functional level, which is good but it's not really her major contribution. Mm -hmm. I think her major contribution is that we need to be, be, we need to be, not just to do, not just to feel, not just to think, we need to be, and that there is a life energy that is much deeper than we have given ourselves credit for.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think when we're in touch with that level of being, the doing, happens all on its own you know
1: it just manifests itself
0: and i know that's yeah that can sound but imagine it like if someone tries to function from a place of i just want to feel less depressed or i want to feel you know i want to feel happier there's a superficiality to that of maybe you can use technique or you can use medication or you Mm -hmm. can you know watch a television show or you eat things. and so there's a superficial way of coping with that but when when we're talking about going within and connecting to a deep, authentic, alive uh, level within yourself, which contains yearnings, that contains the potentials that are, are uniquely yours. And when you live from that place, you know, Virginia created this the seed model. When you imagine your life as a seed and you're nurturing that, it's going to be a unique manifestation. And then there's no, there's no stopping it. But if I'm if I'm functioning from just I want I want to um, just function at reducing symptoms without going beyond that. Right? Just and I and I appreciate what you're saying. To think of this model as is beyond therapy, beyond it's it it enters into well, how can we actualize and manifest ourselves at the highest level within the constraints of this life form, mm-hmm. in our bodies and in and, and the time that we have. And that's really exciting um, to to take it out you know take it out and beyond the therapeutic context um, you know I've been thinking about we can think about the yearning for love I do think there is this, there's a manifestation of skill sets that are important to that we can learn of what communication looks like um, of the kind of languaging the concreteness of that there that are behavioral skills that are really important and I think so. Both, you know, the connection to this deep level self and yearnings, and then the skill acquisition of uh, how I express that, how Mm -hmm. I express myself honestly to you, so that I do feel in harmony, I feel in alignment, um, and then risking that, not knowing what the outcome will be, you know, and just trusting that process. Do you, do you want to talk about beyond Virginia Satir's life and, and the work that you've um, been doing and have been engaged in with the Institute and, and with your work in China. Does that fit as something to talk about now? Sure. Sure.
1: Now, I think I need to say that um, we, had, we had no idea that her life was coming to an end in 1988. There was no plan. There was not. She'd always talked about being around for a long time. She thought that we all had the capacity to live to 125 years old, and so she had no real plan. So when she died so suddenly, um, that left here her organization. She had an or two organization, but one of the organization was the professional one. It left us in pretty disarray. Mm-hmm. And so after she died, we were more. We didn't have a good grieving process and we didn't have a good leadership process things started to uh, disintegrate and so a lot of her so-called senior faculty senior people then would go on and do their own thing mm-hmm. and we i had a triad as you already know of consisting of the the authors of the book yeah. jane jane gerber maria Gomory, and i And we then started to go and do our own stuff. What had happened before Virginia, she had been asked to go to Hong Kong during the summer institutes. We had at least three, maybe more people from Hong Kong joining us in Colorado and they wanted her to come. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, she couldn't come. She wouldn't go, but she would send somebody else. And so the somebody else were Jane and Maria and I. So we went to Hong Kong, started working in Hong Kong. From there, we went to Taiwan and we did some work in Taiwan. And then people from mainland China found out about us and they asked us to come to China. And we did some, or I did some work there.
0: Which city in in mainland China?
1: But that time was, I went to what they call Canton at the time, Guangzhou. I went to Guangzhou to do a little work with the psychiatrists at the time. And then that kind of developed into larger things because that was just the time that China was opening up to the West. Mm -hmm. Up to then, the major... School in China had been psychoanalysis psychoanalysis had come to China Early on before they had closed their doors to the outside And so psychoanalysis was there. And so they were quite eager to take a look at what else is there so they were eager to to have the Western Therapies to come so we were invited both Maria and I we were invited to come to Beijing to do some work with the universities there that 's how it started with china
0: so what was what was the reception like uh, what what resonated and, and how was it different than your experiences in canada and, and in the u s
1: well before that before that, I had already worked in all kinds of other countries so from from ba- from uh, Hong Kong, from went to Thailand. From Thailand, we went to to Thailand, Thailand, and from Thailand we went to Korea. From Korea to Malaysia to Singapore. So I had been working in those countries before we really took off in China. So one of the things that China Chinese students were extremely eager. They were participating in in in. Uh, Korea, for instance, if I wanted a volunteer, I would hardly get a volunteer. In China, if I wanted a volunteer, I would get a dozen before. So they were very, very eager. And that was very appealing, I think, to us, that we had this very keen audience of people wanting to learn. And so it became a very, very attractive Thing for us and it was a very open um, uh, opportunity for them because they had had nothing before so we were one of the f- first uh, western schools that came to China mm-hmm. to work with them mm-hmm.
0: so was it historically and contextually that contributed to their eagerness or was there something that you perceived in their experience of the model that fueled that eagerness what
1: good question. What, you, good question what do you think it was yeah I yeah i'll give you my opinion but we said that you have a self mm. that to me i think was the main uh, experience that you are a self you're not just a number like you know we would go into a restaurant and you would see a waitress and she would have a seven digit number there was no name Tag. there was a number and a tag, they were a number. And we came along and say, you are a person, you are an individual. So that to me was one of the major interests for them, that they were validated as individuals. Very different experience for them and that they could go inside so that they could regulate, they could experience, like you said before, they wouldn't have to look at how other people control them like what other people expected them they were really the you know you know some you might say we, we helped them ground themselves in in themselves in their behavior and their mm-hmm. experience of themselves I think that would be the major the component that I would pick as what how they experienced us
0: so politically was that ever problematic or uh somewhat dangerous to be teaching such a concept which i think well how did how did it how is it in harmony or not in harmony with well the political view it, well the
1: good good question because it depends on how you look at it because yeah. if you look at it we looked at it as you become more responsible mm-hmm. so we were actually training more responsible citizens for china mm-hmm. So that they would take greater responsibility for themselves, greater responsibility in their contribution. So for them, it had a politically good payoff in terms of, of using this idea of energizing them on behalf of uh, providing service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to them, it seemed like it wasn't any conflict
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just, just superficially, when you take that idea of the self, um, and I wonder how it would have been translated in Chinese, there's the self, and then there's being selfish and being self-centered, and then there's the value of family in China and maintaining family harmony. And, you know, in my growing up, the family rules were, you know, you, you act out of duty for your family. You don't expect to be acknowledged or validated as an individual. Everything is for for the unit, whether you're in a parenting role or a child role. So this idea of validation, the things that we're talking about in terms of the kind of presence that Virginia uh, would have been giving people, I think would have been a very um, different experience to to have that, to be validated as a self. Um, So, yeah, so how, you know, how was that? received i guess it was received pretty well well,
1: yeah it was pretty but i think your point is you know they they confuse it very often with selfish what you're telling us to be selfish and you're selfish kind of thing and so we had to use metaphors like you know you can't help somebody unless you're able to you know be competent you can't help somebody walking better if you can't walk you can't do this further until, so we had to make out that you, the person had to be more capable of being a helper than being being totally ignored. And mm-hmm. that being being capable became your responsibility for doing it. And the Satir model, of course, was considered family therapy. So the family aspect was a very strong component of them to mm-hmm. honor the family so when we did family of origin that was very meaningful for them mm-hmm. to to have them take a look at it because that was honoring not just their parents but their grandparents or yes. maybe yeah, even so yeah so mm-hmm. the three generational uh, exploration of the satire model became a very important part of them and they mm-hmm. liked it they really kind of liked it and then they could later on and learn about it okay now how can you manage the impact and and change the impact so that you can now live in the present so family of origin was a very nice entry into their world mm-hmm.
0: can you give me an example of a of a transformation where of, of things that you witnessed that were maybe generally common of this transition from not not identifying with the self to identifying a self. like what were what would what would a transformation of a family rule be at the beginning and at the end of a process like that
1: well let's see that could be very complex let's take a take a look at okay we're we're going to start with awareness we want to look at how you got to where you are and mm-hmm. uh, not who are you are how did you get to where you are? And so we're going to take a look at uh, your parents okay we have looked at it. Now we look at parents in terms of a coping aspect of it. so we teach them how we pe- people cope and coping to them was quite easy to, to show them blaming, uh, uh, super reasonable and so forth. So you would take a, you would teach them how to look at, how do relationships in the family cope with each other mm. in terms of that? And so most of, the, most of the family relationships would be in a hierarchical level. And so there would be a lot of being in control at the top and being a, a placating, a obeying at the level mm-hmm. of this. Yeah. And so we would role play this. And most of them, this would be in terms of a sculpt. Right. And they really like sculpting. They, they, so they can, they're they very visual, of course, as you know. So they, 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 we would sculpt the various relationships and see how can you move the relationship from a, say, placating, blaming to a congruent kind of aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And so congruent wouldn't be so selfish. It would be a lot healthier. So mm-hmm. they could look at congruence being healthy, being responsible without making it selfish. Mm,
0: I love that. Yeah. And I just to, to illustrate for people that aren't aware, placating is, you know, on one knee and on one foot and sort of crouched over it and, and and smaller and, you know, I'm always wrong or I'm I'm the victim or you're always right. And blaming is, is one of the stances is standing upright, very rigid and pointing a finger and i think just and i think this speaks to the universality of virginia's work where um when you have that when you have that image and you're asking the question what's healthy anyone could look at that and say well this is not a healthy dynamic this is not mm-hmm. a healthy way to be to be always down or to always be dominating and so is that is that true is that the people perceive that pretty quickly as yeah as a parent as a parent i don't want to be rigidly right like this and being locked into this position all the time and then you could introduce the idea of congruence as, as maybe a healthier way of being
1: well most of it most of the point when you when we sculpted they would be the the the, the person the ip in our sculpt would be the child mm-hmm. so we would say we would bring together We wouldn't take them into their present family. We would bring them into their family of origin and they would be the child. And very often then they would be placating their parents. Mm. And then they would say how terrible it feels inside. What do you feel inside? What would you like to say? How do you experience Mm. that? And they would immediately be able to, at least seem like that, they were immediately being able to go inside and express their feelings and their experience. Mm and then you know how would you like it to be and then it's okay how would you like it to be would you i want to stand up i want to relate to them differently mm-hmm. and so what has to happen and so then you can start a changing what change has to happen
0: nice yeah and it's it's the identification through an embodied experience of the sculpt i'm placating i'm not just talking about placating mm-hmm. i'm i'm in that embodied form yeah and and from there the the amplification of that discomfort and with the support of of a guide and of a therapist to say where would you like to be you know because that and that relationship is modeling that and hopefully they're experiencing that mm-hmm. equality of value and virginia often talked about uh wanting to encourage people to to be on their own two feet to stand on your own two feet and another image that I have of that in, in terms of encouraging people is imagine two people that don't know how to swim. How do they relate? You know, you, mm-hmm. you throw them in the deep end. What do they do? You know, and, and oftentimes we can mm-hmm. see relationships like that. Yep. They grab onto one another and now they're both together. Yes. So, yeah. so we're trying to learn to both be competent swimmers and that that is that connection to yourself, being able to be responsible for yourself and to relate in a healthy way. And again, I, I guess I come back to the, you know, we're all in a, we're all in a chaotic time with this need to be physically distant, but I I think this is now a great time for us to relearn what it means to be in connection with one another, and I think this, this metaphor of how can I really be on my own two feet, how can I be aware of these survival coping patterns, it's, it's a great opportunity for that kind of learning, because I know Virginia talked a lot about how these are learnings and modelings that happen from our family of origins. You know, we, we witnessed what we saw and these are intergenerational mm-hmm. things. But I think it's, it's way deeper than that. This, this is millions and years of evolution where these survival patterns, you know, they're, they're a human form, but fight, flight, and freeze that we've, we've taken on like social ways of enacting these things of fighting, of arguing, of blaming, mm-hmm. of, of, of being meek and giving in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, so they're they're so fundamentally a part of our lower instinctual aspects of our being that but but I do love her emphasis on teaching and of learning that we can we can layer on new and new ways of learning that are really human in form and um, yeah, so I guess whatever the culture is, we all have that opportunity, and this relates back to the work that you're doing you know, in the West and in the East. So what else can you share about how people adapted this learning? Yeah.
1: Well, let me go a little further back. Let's see what, what are we trying to do in China? Mm-hmm. Because some people say, okay, what are you doing? Why are you spending all your time and bringing all your colleagues there to help China? My goal is to impact 65 million Chinese to be happy, healthy, and successful. Mm-hmm. So we have we have a goal of providing uh, a methods, a means of helping 65 million people to have. 65 million is if you read the tipping point it has, is based on the tipping point formula to bring in a social kind of change so in order to bring a social kind of change we have to we have to impact 65 million to be happy healthy and successful mm-hmm. now in china the they have a go- government as you all know the government ha- also has goals i have three goals they have three goals so government goal the, the prime the premier the uh, the chairman of the government has three goals and his three goals, I can relate to those. I can tell you those is security, prosperity, and happiness. He mm-hmm. Chinese culture that I gather you're familiar with, mm-hmm. happiness is a birthright. In United States, happiness it is a pursuing happiness is a birthright. Mm-hmm. In China, It's not a pursuing. It's a birthright to be happy. So I overlap with one third of the government's goal. My goal is to be happy, healthy, and successful. They are happy, uh, secure, and prosperous. So in one sense, I'm helping the government achieve its goal. So that sense, we have some connection with government, certain level of government that they're saying okay the satire model is actually coming here and giving us the tools to achieve our birthright mm-hmm. So part of our goal then is to do workshops that will help people to be happier So that is maybe one reason the satire model has be considered the most popular model in China at this moment.
0: Mm. So, uh, can you can you describe what you mean by happiness? Um,
1: so, let's use one word to be more congruent. Right. Yeah. So, being more congruent inside, more congruent in a relationship, more congruent in the context, in the mm-hmm. culture in which you live. Mm-hmm. So, congruence is then. As at least a three-prong kind of thing, internal, you know. So that big phrase of satire means peace within. That would be congruent. Peace between and peace among. Mm. So that, to me, would be a one picture of what I mean by by being happy. Is if you are uh, in touch with your peace inside, peace between, and peace among. Mm-hmm. And that itself, they really like that by the way, be peace within peace between and peace among and so to mm-hmm. me, happiness would be part of that
0: yeah, I think this the, the word peace and of harmony, whether it 's and, and I think starting with yourself and making yourself uh, as healthy and as safe a person by owning and taking responsibility for yourself then contributes to the, the, the contextual piece, the, the relational piece. And I've seen that in, over and over again in my work with people, with couples, with families, where when we learn this ability to go inside and to, be, to take that responsibility, it inevitably changes what happens on the outside.
1: Let's well, um, see one of the other things that's culturally helpful. They have a sense of energy Way bit more than we have so the, yeah. the, the tea there's there they know about energy. So when I talk about energy it my in my kind of uh, Einsteinian kind of thing they have their own sense of energy and so when I talk about you know life energy they have a connection with that. So mm-hmm. that brings model, teaching of my satire model, to a closer connection with their historical aspect. Right. So of people yeah. actually saying, I understand my culture better now that I've learned the satire model than ever before. Mm-hmm. So there is a connection and maybe even an overlap of how their culture, their philosophical culture is and what we're teaching.
0: What does it enrich for people in China that they wouldn't have otherwise without the model? I wonder, what does it, what is it uh, help manifest or develop for them?
1: Well, the thing that we bring into it that they don't have is experiential. Mm. They are, they're tremendous good students. You know? if, if I do a, a lecture, for instance, they can tell me next day all the things I said. They're... <laughs> Absolutely Super at learning wow. by memorizing yeah. by learning it. So for me to bring the whole uh, life Energy into an experience where they experience themselves is very new for a lot of them hmm. And so a lot of them, you know, they would if they wanted to be What their system says they would all be so-called super reasonable right. and for them to experience something beyond being super reasonable, making it experiential, is very uh, treasure, very treasurable for them. Mm. So I can add something to what they already have. So they can understand what we have, but we want to experience what they are? And then how can they change their experience into a, a positive energy? I don't know. It makes all kinds of sense to me. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I'm getting it across, but...
0: Well, well I'm, trying, I'm trying to imagine... Um, and I think where the complexity of Virginia Satir's work is she didn't function just with emotions or she didn't just work with behavior. She didn't work just with thoughts. She worked and didn't work just, you know, with communication. She was working at all these various levels. And so right. when you're talking about congruence... And the manifestation of that—it is a connection to a deep, let's say, yearning of something, uh, for connection, for uh, contribution, and what that looks like and what that feels like tangibly. You know what, what by the end point of what mm-hmm. it's like to experience that through your fingertips and through your eyes, and to feel that between, and to to trust that that's that's available to you. And I think in these workshops and these training experiences, if they can, and and I imagine they do experience these things because they keep they keep coming and they're inspired. And, and I don't know how many thousands of people you've trained, uh, but um, it, it seems like you're well on your way to your goal. Um, but I <laughs> no. think I I, I th- but I think but I think for for me in in the context of my my own practice and and working with people, it is a very different experience to get out of your head get into your body, mm-hmm. get into yeah. um, a connection where, okay, so I'm, I'm connected to my yearning for love. How can I communicate that just with my eyes? What is that? Can you try to do that? Mm-hmm. I, and just forget all the garbage of the, the pattern of how you argue about the dishes or whatever it is. But to be here now um, and to, to share that energy without the defense part of it. In my own circle and in my own wish, uh, it 's very much in alignment with yours to to share this work and to to create more possibilities for connecting to this universal life energy and finding ways to manifest it that, that feel truthful, that feel congruent as you 're describing yeah. mm-hmm. yes. Well, John, I wonder if i 'm um, starting to feel a little bit tired myself um, yeah. maybe we yeah. can we can um, save. Uh, more for our next conversation, but um I want to thank you for for all the work that you've done your your connection beginning in nineteen seventy and even beyond i think of um, you know all the things that had to be in place for you to have that meeting with Virginia and to take your life course on this path and for us to finally meet just a few years ago and I think hopefully for us to continue to to grow in our connection together and for me to learn from you and yeah. um to contribute to you know the larger world in whatever way that we can through conversations like this um i thank you so much for for being here with me today
1: thank you thank you and-